Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, um, I have Brianna Grosicki with us from Place Economics. Thank you for joining uh, me, Brianna. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your background. So um, I grew up in Virginia and surrounded by Civil War history, um, which is, I think, what kind of got me into preservation is just you know, running on a cross Civil War battlefield for a cross country race in high school, um, just really um, allowed me to explore um, historic sites around me and, you know, be impacted by the events that took place there. Um, I, oh, also, for <laughs> like day job, I am associate principal at Place Economics. Uh-huh. Currently, and I've been with the firm seven years, okay. and I'm also chairwoman of Preservation Action, which is America's grassroots lobby for historic preservation, and I'm also on the National Alliance of Preservation Commission's board of directors, and I've been with them for almost six years now. Um, I really, um, and I, I think I just discovered it last year. I really enjoyed their newsletter. I read it online. Oh, good. The, yeah. the Alliance Review. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. No, it's a great publication um, and great resource. And I also love the listserv on the email listserv if you're a part of that. I'm not. Um, you should you should sign up to to join that because it's everybody from you know how do you hide um, you know utility boxes in your historic district to um, you know how to handle this situation or that situation. It's it's very great. Oh yes, yeah, and those are all those are all problems that are like very very immediate in historic districts i consult with the our local um preservation group and the past couple weeks that they've been putting meters in all through town so i've been getting all kinds of calls absolutely (laughs) that that is that is a big a big problem so okay well how did you how did you um get to working with our uh at place economics was it um did you go to school for preservation or what what was your what is your background in that way yeah. So my long-winded answer is that I've always kind of been a local government nerd. Okay. Like I got involved with my Main Street. I like volunteered with my Main Street district when I was like 16 on the events committee. And then I decided um, I had an internship with my like town, like town of Woodstock, Virginia. Okay. I was literally our tall grass inspector one summer <laughs> with a ruler, like driving around town. But I left for college. I went to William & Mary for undergrad thinking yeah. that I wanted to be a planner in okay. a historic town. 
Right. And then at the end of undergrad, I was like, I'm not done learning. I want to learn more about preservation. And so I went straight into grad school at the University of Pennsylvania in Philly. Okay. Yeah. Which is great to learn about the layers of history and how we're inside in what used to be an 1830s row house in Chinatown that, you know, had Chinese architecture stuck on the front in the 70s. And right. <laughs> how do you tell the story of all of these layers of history? Yeah. Um, so at Penn, I took Donovan Ripkema's class, Economics Preservation, had a good time. And actually, Donovan was headed to the World Urban Forum, which is this big conf giant conference about city building put on by UN Habitat. And he was going to Naples, Italy, and he was like, hey, do you want to come with me um, and help, you know, woman the booth at, at right. this big conference? And so... Um, we had a great time, um, and I think I, you know, solidified my, myself as a good person to him then. Right. Um, the summer after I graduated, he called and said, hey, I've got some project with, you know, North Carolina Main Street. I don't know how long it'll last, but, um, you know, will you come on board for that? And I was getting ready to move to Muncie, Indiana with my uh, then fiance, now husband, um, and had no job lined up. So I was like, sure. <laughs> and that was about seven years ago. Okay. Um, now part owner, associate principal, and we're now, Place Economics is now five people. Um, so I live in Savannah, Georgia. Donovan's in DC. Caitlin Cotton is in DC. Rodney Swink is in Raleigh, North Carolina. And our newest addition, Alyssa Freistock, is in Chicago. So, oh well, so you were already hard. working remotely before. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We've been remote. Um, I would say the biggest change with COVID is that we can't, uh, you know, go do site work. Oh yeah. Which is very disappointing for Donovan. He loves the loves to, you know, get on the ground and talk with people and, you know, see the main streets or see the historic districts. Yes. Um, but I think for me, it's been nice to kind of sh shift a little bit remote because it allows me, you know, I have a one-year-old, so like I can through Zoom, we can still host focus groups and client calls, and I still get to be included. Right. And I still get to be, you know, momming full time. Right. So that's and, and that's nice to have that balance, especially yeah. for a little one. Yes. Yeah. So so you did do you feel I, I, I know my next question is like why preservation? Do you feel like you've explained that or do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was actually homeschooled growing up. Okay. And pretty much every Friday we took a field trip. And being in Virginia, we often went to historic sites, and that just really spoke to me. Um, I really loved being around them. And so then when I figured out, like, hey, you can do municipal preservation, like, that is just the coolest thing. Um, right. And I get to be a local government nerd. And so now being on the consultant side of things, you know, you still get to, you know, learn about all these different communities and try to help them with their problems, but then also not take on all their problems because I'm right. still coming back home. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. And, and I, I think that would be um, because you get to impact and you get to probably impact more than you would if you were just in one community too. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, well, so yeah, I know we've kind of touched about, talked about it a little bit, but tell me about place economics. Um, what kind of services you offer? Is it Nash or nationwide worldwide? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we work very specifically at the intersection of economics and historic preservation. Donovan uh, Brookma started the firm over 30 years ago and worked for himself for many years and has, has had people on um, as needed. But 
since I've come on, we've really been able to expand the firm um, to now the five people and, you know, find work that keeps us busy. Um, most of our work is uh, domestic, but we have done assignments abroad. Um, we actually just finished up a second assignment for the Emirates of Abu Dhabi, looking at their modern heritage um, and how they might structure policy to help uh, preserve and conserve more of that. Um, but yeah, it's been really fun to work all over the country and see, you know, tens of communities. Um, you know, one time we had to do visit 17 towns in Illinois and you get to see a lot of Illinois. Yes. <laughs> towns, and that is um, great experience to see how many passionate people there are out there fighting for their, you know, school or courthouse or whatever the building is. Um, right. It's really impactful. Yeah. The, um, I, when I was on the website doing the research to prepare for this, I was looking, you have like a lot of a focus on remote sites. Is that COVID related or remote services? Is that COVID related? Yeah, that's, that's our attempt to, to still, you know, we had to sit down and say, okay, well, we can't, you know, go on the ground in, you know, town X, but we can still provide a good product. Um, despite that not being on the ground. So, We've shifted things um, and actually have several projects going where we're entirely remote and just doing focus groups online and looking at a lot of pictures, a lot of Google Street View to absorb the towns and yeah. Yeah, I, it, the, the, as I, because I, I speak to a lot of different organizations and companies, you know, doing the podcast and it's amazing to me how many, how quickly people, you know, quickly adopt, adapt it. And then they also, you know, the creativity, I just think it's, I think it's great just from a, from a business standpoint of being able to, um, to reach different people that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise because of the, because, because, because they're now, you know, at home too. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, tell me a little bit about the economic benefits of preservation. So yeah, so the way we approach it most often is looking at um, historic district boundaries, okay. kind of what's happening in those areas of a city versus everything else. Um, we do assignments at a lot of different geographies. Um, sometimes it's involved with looking at the impact of tax credit projects um, or Main Street districts, um, but we've really had a good streak of, of people hiring us to do these citywide studies, looking at the citywide economic impact of, you know, their local preservation program. So oftentimes what we found with these, you know, historic districts versus everything in the city that's not in historic right. district is that they're really economically, socially, and culturally dense and productive. Um, one area that people often maybe jump to conclusions about with historic districts is um, the value premium. You right. know, districts more expensive, do they hurt my property values? Those sorts of thoughts often jump into people's heads. But we, we find time and time again from places as small as Saratoga Springs, New York to LA is that historic districts, particularly local historic districts, the more oversight slash protection seems to provide a larger value premium in the market. And it's provided some stability from foreclosures as we've okay. mapped those through the, you know, the past yeah. session. Um, and I don't want people to think that, okay, historic districts are the most expensive house. Right. We map the change in value over time. And so what it means, and even in LA, actually, you know, the average house in a historic district was worth less than others that weren't designated. Right. But those houses in the historic districts appreciated 
in value at a greater rate, which is the American, like we own a home because we want to grow our wealth, grow our asset. And that's exactly what historic districts have done all over the country. That, that's interesting. And I, I know I have a, we have a realtor that follow, follows us and, you know, will come to our events and things. And he asked me that question specifically. And I sent him to your, to your website after I did some research, because he's like, I've been reaching out to the, um, the realtors association all the, and he said, nobody can give me the answer. So you mm-hmm. have the answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, do you also, uh, when you're, looking at the economic benefits of preservation, do you, do you look at the job creation aspects or is it mostly like property values? So that's one thing that I've really enjoyed about since joining preservation, since joining place economics is that, you know, Don is a very curious person. So we often cast a very wide net of like, let's measure everything (laughs) (laughs) and then have to like reel ourselves in, um, in, in to certain areas. But yeah, I think the, um, I'll just reiterate that just historic district and older areas, even if they're not designated, right. um, and our research has proved this, so as the National Trust, um, you know, formerly Green Labs, uh, showed that historic areas just have more people in them, they have more businesses in them, um, more jobs per square foot. Um, even in places like New York City, we saw greater propensity of startup businesses and small businesses to be located in historic districts. Um, women and minority owned businesses are um, choose to be in historic districts all the time. Um, and the rehabilitation work itself, we know is labor intensive right. and um, that creates economic impacts as well. Um, one stat that we've had recently is that for every hundred jobs, um, created through new construction, it creates 135 jobs elsewhere in the economy. But for every 100 jobs created in rehab, creates 186 jobs elsewhere in the economy. So because rehab is labor intensive and uses more skills and less materials, right. that has a larger local impact. Um, and I also think the whole circular economy is gaining traction, you know, long before Joanna Gaines made reclaimed ship lab (laughs) a thing, people have been, you know, reusing building materials. Like I can't go to Home Depot and find replacement materials for my 1919 house, which is not even, it's not designated, but you know, I can't find this trim work or the parts for the windows. Um, so I'm going to have to rely on the, you know, Savannah has like one deconstruction firm in town. That's actually all lady runs called repurpose Savannah. So, you know, I'll be looking to them to find replacement parts for things. Right. Um, And that is all local. If you can keep the materials flowing, Um, So I know a bunch of cities are looking at deconstruction ordinances and how to, you know, help with small P preservation. Um, Just maintain your house, invest in existing resources. It all adds to the economy. Right. It does. It does. And it's, it's, it's also, I think, acknowledging the, the, the green aspect and with the deconstructive or deconstruction orders, acknowledging that the materials are not the same. Mm-hmm. And they're not, they're not, they're more valuable than something you could just go buy off of a, a you know, in a, in a hardware store now. Yeah. Um, because, because of the material it's made from and the, and the workmanship and everything else. So, 
Um, so are you, uh, I, I don't know if you deal with this or if you, if you get pushback when you go into communities, but I know gentrification is like a buzzword and I struggle with it because I'm like, that's how we make our money. But <laughs> uh, do you feel like preservation makes neighborhoods less affordable or do you feel like it holds true that they, that they stay about the same as they were going, starting out? So I think my issue with gent the word gentrification, I don't know, I almost think it's like an academic term mostly because like I find very few people talk about it in a meaningful way. So like is preservation causing gentrification? I don't know, is house flipping, you know, is speculative development? So like there's all these other factors happening. And so the fact that an area was privileged enough to be publicly recognized as a historic district, I just don't make that link but again it's like preservation has a communication problem where we're not talking about like what is preservation and so right. people make these assumptions mm -hmm. um and i think you know i ever heard a guy in an airplane a while back say that he invests in properties in boston savannah and new orleans just to turn them into airbnbs and that type of speculative development is what you know skyrockets a neighborhood and changes the pace of change and I think historic districts pr can protect from that, right? Right. If it can curb some of that speculative development. Um, and I also think there's areas, particularly like even here in Savannah, where these neighborhoods are economically depressed. They're probably former redlined areas. And so I think people see any change as, oh, that's gentrification, but right. you know, and I think that's what you you were getting at is you know, okay, we've rehabbed this property; it's now worth more. Mm -hmm. Is that a bad thing for the neighborhood? No, but like, how do you spread out the wealth and make sure that the people right. that nice. want to stay there can stay there? And so right. the displacement issue is that's legit. Um, and so there's definitely we've in our recent study in Miami we suggested that. Um, you know, next time they go to um, enact a local historic district that they also provide some affordable housing overlays, making it easier to, you know, convert a house into a duplex or build an ADU or convert a garage into an ADU, therefore providing more spaces for people to live on different mm -hmm. price points mm -hmm. and hopefully curb displacement. Um, yeah, and, and, and the research shows that if you have a mixed income community, it's actually a stronger community than, so, so and I think that that's something, I think when people hear affordable housing, they kind of freak out, but it's not necessarily what people think of. It's just yes. having different price points. Exactly. And yeah, yeah that economic inclusiveness, mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, again, people see, you know, a historic district and they think, you know, these big grand houses, but oftentimes if you look at the spread of historic districts that are in a neighborhood, they have a whole bunch of different types of neighborhood. And actually, you know, even that fancy looking historic district probably has a lot of hidden density. And right. there are people on all sorts of the income spectrum that can afford to live there. Right. Um, right. Because there's different sizes of units. Um, yeah. And I think people forget that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. And um, you were talking about that speculative development in the Airbnbs. I think that's something that the local ordinance should, should really look at. I know that there's, there's, it, there's um, restrictions in Lancaster City. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, because yeah, it does. It takes it takes housing stock away then from people who live here, and it, mm -hmm. it then it forces all the rest of the prices up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that is that that is a struggle. Um, yeah, it it is, and I don't know if that market is changing now, just because 
they lost the 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 people who were doing that took a big hit this spring. So I mm-hmm. don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the trends are there. I, I'm curious to to watch those. Yeah, yeah. I will uh, as well. Here in Savannah, I know that um, because the SCAD Savannah College of Art and Design is online, right. that a lot of the landlords are you know, feeling pressure because they don't have as much student demand Uh, for housing as they used to. And yeah, there's not as much Airbnb demand. So, you know, will they go back to renting to families for, you know, a reasonable price? Right. I hope so. But I don't know. So, well, what, um, what challenges and and trends do you see in, um, in preservation? I think preservation's big challenge right now is relevancy. And again, this communication issue, you know, um, I was watching the um, Dismantle Historic Preservation Conference that my friend um, Sarah Marsam hosted a few weeks back. Um, And one of the recent conversations, Bonnie McDonald, who's the executive director of um, Landmarks Illinois, you know, said that she's always practiced that preservation is about people. And I think we're still bringing, bringing a lot of the preservation field to that realization where we might say that, but your, your nonprofit's annual report is still plastered with pictures of buildings that have no people in them. (laughs) So it's like, you have to think about how you're presenting yourself. Like if you care about people, then your annual report should be all people. Right. Um, And, you know, if you save that house, you better talk about the family that, you know, Right. It's and tell, tell the story moved from yeah. it or, you know, it just, so we as preservationists have to communicate better about why we need to be at the table. Um, right. Why we care about affordable housing, how we can be involved in affordable housing, how it is more affordable to rehab existing units right. than to build new. Um, and a lot of people are just struggling to make those connections with their local um, networks. Um, and even on the national scale, we've seen putting my preservation action hat on now, we've seen great, um, great legislation in Congress this year, like the moving forward act, we got some preservation aspects of the, um, historic tax credit in there. That was the Democrats house bill, uh, for infrastructure. Um, we got the great American outdoors act passed, which funds the backlog of National Park Service maintenance, like huge wins on that side. And then on the other side is um, these regulation changes, you know, changes the National Register process, changes Mm to um, NEPA, um, you know, blatantly ignoring tribal uh, consultations, like all this stuff is happening. So we as preservationists need to be better at communicating, hey, I'm a preservation voter. There are thousands of people and thousands of communities across the country that have preservation programs that care about these issues that want to be able to list their local courthouse. And if you make those national register changes, that might make it more difficult. Um, So with Preservation Action, like we try to empower people to feel um, confident enough to approach their elected officials and we do that through advocacy week which right only happens once a year but like you can reach out to your member of congress today <laughs> know that you're a preservation voter right um and i think it goes also with um local and state reps too um you know are you making a yearly um pitch to lancaster city council on like what is historic preservation in lancaster done this year right um, well and and i when we're, when we're talking to homeowners i i always say you know 
these ordinances and these this zoning and these decisions about the demolition, you know, any of the any of the things that happen that need that need the approval happen at the municipal level. And so if you want those to change, you need to work with your municipality mm -hmm. to change, you know, that there needs to be a review if there's a demolition or, you know, any of those things, because mm -hmm. it's not, it's not impacted even, even at the county level, it's all local. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think back to like, preservation is, is so grassroots. <laughs> um, you know, like even the little ladies who say Mount Vernon, like that was a grassroots effort. Right. Um, getting the National Historic Preservation Act passed was a grassroots effort. The fact that we saved the historic tax credit in the Tax Reform Act of 2017 was a grassroots effort. So, you know, most local historic commissions are staffed by volunteers. Yes. So I think people forget all these things. And it's hard because, because parts of preservation are institutionalized. Right. We are part of the system that has to change. We know we have a diversity issue. Um, but the only way we're going to change that is with more energy and more people coming to the table. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and the more people you have and the more voices that, that you have, it helps to, to be more inclusive and tell more of the, the complete story of the, of the people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So is there anything that we didn't, that you want to cover that we didn't, um, I usually ask that just because sometimes things pop into to you know people's heads as we're talking. Yeah, I mean, at Place Economics, we are diving into a project on intangible heritage, and that's also something that um, the National Alliance Preservation Commissions has recently issued a. St I don't know if you saw um, forum that was um, at the beginning of August here. Okay but they recently issued a statement of, of how we're going to really help train historic local historic preservation commissions to be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And I think recognizing culture that isn't always tangible and like the fanciest building in town right. um, is a hurdle that a lot of preservationists have to get over, uh, you know, the integrity question. Right. Um, you know, designation might not be the future for everything, uh, you know, it's okay. It's still preservation if you reuse the building and it's not landmarked. You right. Know? Yeah, it is. It is. So I, I look forward to watching how different municipalities and different groups fight for intangible heritage, which, you know, could be tortilla making or a parade route, um, you know, the Mummers Parade, um, all those things, you know, and how are they celebrated? How are they transmitted and safeguarded to the next generation mm -hmm. um, when, and oftentimes, you know, buildings are a part of that. Like the study we did for Nashville, absolutely. People go to Nashville to see Honky Tonk. Would Honky Tonk be the same if it wasn't in those brick buildings on Lower Broadway? You know, it's like the, the intangible happens in the tangible. Right. So if you lose the tangible, it's harder to- To tell the story. To tell the story. Um, so in that sense, designation is helpful, mm -hmm. um, but it, it can't be our only tool. So I really look forward to seeing how preservationists tackle that. Uh, yeah. As we yeah, I forward. think that's an interesting, I think that's an interesting um, concept. Um, I just finished reading uh, Slavery in the North and it's, he, he's not a, he was not a, um, 
he's not a historian. He is actually a, a psychologist. And he was writing about collective memory and how if you don't have those touch points, the memories start to fade. And then people mm -hmm. just assume that, you know, if people move away, people die, and then nobody's there to remind you that that happened. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought it was a, I, 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 I thought it was a very, it, it was a very, uh, it really solidified in my mind the concept of places and places being important and having those, those things to like have those touchstones for, for telling the story of the history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, the having that intangible heritage now, that's, that's interesting. And I, I'm curious to see what, where, where that goes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think from um, San Francisco is trying to tackle it. San Antonio, Texas is trying to tackle it. Um, I'm sure there's other municipalities that are also looking into it. Um, but yeah, like what, what is the role of the government in that sort of thing um, right. will be an interesting question to explore. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So are, is there anything, I know that we're not really like out in the world doing things, but is there anything that you would like to promote a seminar, a webinar, anything that you're doing? Yeah, actually that great opportunity. Um, Preservation Action Foundation uh, is our 501c3 partner and they are hosting um, our annual auction and fundraiser, which will be October 27th. That's a Tuesday at 7 p.m. It's kind of the commencement to the National Trust virtual pass forward conference at the end of October. Um, so we're gonna have a three week long silent auction. Um, and then on the 27th at 7 p.m. is our hour long live auction and also educational opportunity. We're gonna have pre-recorded cameos from preservation celebrities and members <laughs> of Congress and a special guest speaker who's gonna talk about um, kind of an under-told story in preservation, grassroots story, um, and there'll be auction items to bid on. So Place Economics is going to donate some um, of our webinars and services, um, you know, maybe an, you know, an hour chat with Donovan um, type, type of thing, and there are going to be lots of other great preservation gifts and professional services, experiences, and tours for people to purchase, and all, all the proceeds go to the Preservation Action Foundation. Um, their hallmark program is the Advocacy Scholars Program, um, which sends students um, to Advocacy Week um, to meet with their rep representatives in Congress um, every March. So it's a great way to support preservation and train the next generation of preservationists. Okay, well, very good. Thank you for sharing that. I will make sure that when this goes on our website that we have the link to to that right. information too. So Thank that you. I appreciate somebody that. can just go to it right away. So how can our how can our listeners contact you? Yeah, so my email is bgrosicki at placeeconomics.com. And Place Economics is on Facebook and our Instagram is at placeeconomics. Holly Caitlin does a good job keeping that up. But we'd love to interact with people. Um, now that we're all virtual, you know, our schedules are pretty free. <laughs> if anyone needs, you know, a guest speaker for something, um, we're happy to, to, to work with you. Okay, very good. Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed our conversation today. Absolutely. Thanks, Danielle. Thank yeah. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. 
If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.